Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Justice League's first ever podcast. We have some exceptional guests today representing Justice Studies 303. In order, Christopher Hovarth, Valerie Cohen, Vincent Gomez, and Pilar Vicencio will be speaking about the many ways in which unequal justice is promoted by economic and racial inequality. They will be presenting some theoretical frameworks to accompany their discussions so we can conceptualize their connections. Now, folks, we will be discussing some complex yet enlightening themes, so feel free to sit down, grab a drink and a notepad, and let the Justice League fight inequality one framework at a time. Thank you all for joining us today. My name is Chris Horvath, and I am here to talk about some of the injustices related to immigration and border enforcement. Considering U.S. immigration law in the light of a social contract grounded in the natural law reveals some of the injustices associated with those laws and their enforcement. What do I mean by the natural law? Theorists like Thomas Aquinas and John Locke argued that man-made, or positive law, is based on a universal set of natural laws that are discoverable through reason. In his discussion of the natural law, Matthew Lippmann identifies three ways in which positive laws may be unjust according to the principles of the natural law. First, laws that are intended to benefit only the lawmaker are unjust. Second, Laws that unfairly burden some members of society are unjust. Lastly, laws that exceed the authority of the lawmaker to make laws are unjust. So how does current immigration law violate these principles? In his book, Matt Tibby recounts the stories of immigrants in Georgia and California who are unfairly targeted by law enforcement. The police frequently use traffic checkpoints and traffic stops based on racial profiling to detain those they suspect of being undocumented immigrants. These practices and the laws that codify them clearly burden some members of society more than others and are thus unjust according to the second principle of the natural law. Despite what seems like a clear violation of natural law principle, there are those who object to this conclusion. They might agree that the methods law enforcement uses to detain undocumented immigrants are unjust but after all, they are only enforcing the law and the U.S. has a right to make and enforce such immigration laws as its elected officials see fit. But do countries have the right or authority to restrict immigration? If not, then those laws would themselves be unjust, since they exceed the authority of the lawmaker to make laws. The third principle of the natural law. One way to look for an answer to that question is through the lens of the social contract. John Rawls, in his book Justice as Fairness, describes the social contract as a hypothetical agreement between the members of a society, or their representatives, by which they agree on the basic principles that will govern society. The crucial point for our discussion is the identity of those who are party to the contract. That is, 
who is a member of the society. Rawls adopts a traditional, Westphalian definition of society in which society is synonymous with nation-state. In other words, for Rawls the members of a society are the citizens of a particular nation. Adopting this narrow view of who constitutes a society upholds the idea of national sovereignty, and leads to the conclusion that countries, like the United States, do have the authority to regulate immigration and enforce immigration laws. Thus, on the Rawson view the methods used to enforce immigration laws may be unjust but the state's authority to make such laws is not. This however is not the only interpretation or definition of society and hence of who is party to the social contract. In his book, The Racial Contract, Charles Mills takes a global perspective on the social contract. He argues that the social contract is global in scope and exists only between white Europeans. It is this global racial contract that served as the foundation of European colonialism. Mills contends that this racial contract still exists today, as evidenced by the phenomena of globalization and global economic inequality. On this view then, the social contract is global, not national, and exists to serve the interests of a particular segment of society. Adopting this view leads us to a somewhat different conclusion about existing immigration policy and the natural law. Since the social contract only includes white Europeans and their colonial descendants, the laws made under that contract serve only the lawmakers, who are themselves party to the contract. Thus, immigration law is unjust because it, along with all other laws, violate the first principle of the natural law. So, to summarize. One's assessment of current U.S. immigration law depends in large part on whether one adopts a state-centric view of the social contract, like John Rawls, or a globalist view, like Charles Mills. If you adopt a state-centered view you are likely to conclude that the methods used to enforce U.S. immigration law are unjust according to the natural law, because they unfairly burden some members of society. But the authority of nations to regulate immigration is itself just. On the other hand, if you adopt the global view of the racial contract, you will most likely conclude that U.S. immigration law is unjust according to the natural law because it, like other laws, serves to benefit only the lawmakers, that is, those who are party to the social contract. Valerie Cohen, and today I will be discussing what I believe to be an important issue involved with explaining the relationship between economic inequality and unequal justice. And that issue is the idea of racialized policing, which is best understood in view of the theoretical framework of social contract theory. Social contract theory is what explains the socially interconnected relationships that exist between individuals within society through the understanding of the unspoken contract that exists within said society. 
Social contract theory is what sets the stage for interactions within society, meaning that racialized policing came about as it was written in the rules set forth by social contract theory itself. These rules have come about in order to create a standard for the way that society will exist, which led to the hierarchy of different groups of individuals based on their race. According to Charles Mills, there is a specific contract that exists within the framework of the social contract theory called the racial contract. This racial contract is what caused there to be a divide between the two groups of individuals, whites and non-whites. He discusses the idea that as the social contract is taken to establish the legitimacy of nation and state, the racial contract involves the basis of the planet as a whole. This divide is what leads to there being unequal and unfair treatment of different individuals on the basis of race. Matt Taibbi discusses how individuals who are of a higher economic status are not typically the ones that are arrested, as it does not matter what the crimes themselves are, but rather what does matter is who you are. He brings attention to the fact that the New York police officers often go undercover and arrest large groups of individuals before these individuals even have the chance to breathe. This happens because people are often targeted by police when they have not explicitly done anything wrong, and these individuals typically are of color. These individuals have preconceived notions already formed about them before they even commit any crimes. Society itself has cast these individuals in a negative light. Social contract theory makes the idea that a just society is not what was in mind when society itself was being constructed. The racial contract shows us that there was always a hierarchy between individuals based on their race and their destiny was predetermined for them upon entering this society. This racial injustice affects individuals within a broad spectrum, from social injustice to economic injustice. It is all interconnected. Social contract theory sets the rules for society, meaning that it impacts the lives of many individuals. Individuals who are not given the power that white individuals are given within society are not given the same opportunities that they need in order to succeed. When people of color were brought into America, they were treated poorly and not as people. These individuals were granted zero rights and treated as property as they were here to do what the white people had wanted them to do. Slavery helped shape the social contract theory, and as Charles Mills discusses, the effects of slavery still affect many individuals in today's society, as the wealth gap between white individuals and individuals of color is still present. Social contract theory helps explain how this injustice came about, as well as how it is still prevalent in current society. Social contract theory seeks to inform us of what has created the existence of this racial and economic injustice within our society. Hi, everyone. 
This is Vincent Gomez, and I will be talking about the relationship between the concept of properties and intersectionality. Intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, and in 2016, she explains it as the merge within an individual's identities. This means that there is an intersection between one's race, gender, sexuality, etc. These same intersections have caused unique struggles for people of color as their race is not the only thing that would get them discriminated against. In regards to property, this country was built on the notion that only free men had the rights to enjoy access to property. Now, most people would not consider the fact that the term property extends to more than just the lands that the colonizers settled in. It also encompasses ideas, money, and even bodies. Cheryl Harris expands on this in 1993 when she mentions that the European settling over Native America established a custom that would glorify whiteness and racialized property. In turn, the value of being white increased as it became a symbol of being a free man. Though uncontrollable, these settlers used their race to take control and prioritize this precious white identity that can provide some sense of power over those who do not fit within the scope. How does it relate to intersectionality? Well, we can gather from Harris that whiteness has been used as a tool to maintain power over communities of color. So, race has become a determinant in who gets treated in a specific way. However, race is not our only identity trait. It is a known fact that society has allowed for men to hold some power over women, for heterosexuals to hold power over queer peoples, and etc. When these traits coincide with one's race, the chances are the discrimination they face can be higher. Furthermore, its impact on the economic sphere is extremely noticeable in the form of wage gaps. In the United States, women are severely underpaid than men. Additionally, according to Tone Talks in 2017, there is an existing wealth gap between the white community and black community, leading us to conclude that there are gaps between white people and other communities of color as well. Unfortunately, this shows that black women suffer twice as much in the sense that they have to face more limitations than black men and white women do. Take Crenshaw's anecdote, in which she reveals that a black woman named Emma was rejected by a company because of her status. Crenshaw notes that her blackness and womanhood became key factors on why she got rejected, offering a hypothesis in which black men were hired for labor and white women were hired as front desk workers. Additionally, the court that ruled over Emma's case dismissed it because they did not want her to have an extra, air quotes, identity leverage, in which she can use both her race and gender to file for discrimination. This kind of erasure is not only damaging, but it perpetuates a notion that we should be ignoring our identities, especially if we exist in more than one community. If thinking pessimistically, we can see that these intersections have restrained minority groups' access to power and therefore property. It is unfortunate to see that individuals are being kept from achieving economic stability and gaining property just because of their intersecting identities. To finish, I find it very interesting that property has been controlled by white people for much of this country's independence, and with money being property as well, it is no surprise that most of this country's wealth are in the hands of white people. That is all I have for you listeners today. Thank you for joining me on my segment, and have a wonderful day. Good evening.
My name is Pilar Vicencio. In my segment on economic inequality and how it relates to unequal racial justice, we'll be covering the relationship between colonialism and economic issues. Colonialism in the United States has perpetuated detrimental economic progression and has inculcated white supremacy in everyday life. Such inequalities range from racial segregation in housing and schools, by political demagoguery, by racialized media imagery, and by the ease of changing one perception of reality by simply changing television channels. To begin with, I believe it is important to highlight what Chris mentioned earlier, that immigration law is unjust and violates the first principle of the natural law, that certain rights and freedoms are more important or basic than others. Immigrants are not the only people affected by our social constructs. Black people are affected virtually in every aspect of social existence and therefore reap the benefits of inequality. John Rawls in his article, Justice is Fairness, states that slaves are human beings who are not counted as source of claims, not even claims based on social duties or obligation, for slaves are not counted as capable of having duties or obligations. Laws that prohibit the abuse and maltreatment of slaves are not founded on claims made by slaves on their own behalf, but on claims originating either from slaveholders or from the general interest of society, which do not include the interest of slaves. Angela Davis asks the probing question in her book, Are Prisons Obsolete? What is the relationship between these historical expressions of racism and the role of the prison system today? Exploring such connections may offer us different perspective on the current state of the punishment industry. Much like Jim Crow laws, policies in modern day are strategically created that resemble. To explore and analyze justice in a moral, equitable, and structured manner, John Rawls provides the aspect of applying the veal of ignorance. Basically, the idea is that no one knows who they are and that the parties are not allowed to know the social positions or particular comprehensive doctrines of the person they represent. They also do not know race and ethnic group, sex, or various native endowments, such as, such as strength and intelligence. However, this contradicts Michelle Alexander's view on mass incarceration in America, specifically to people of color, stating that the system of mass incarceration works to trap people of color. Vast numbers of people are swept into the criminal justice system by the police who conduct drug operations primarily in poor communities of color, effectively guaranteeing that those who are swept into the system are primarily black and brown. This highlights the veil of ignorance approach in every aspect. Policies are strategically enacted with obscure jargon that reflect past oppression, discrimination, and blatant racist motives. Such policies are prison regulations. The penal system in the United States acts as a last resort for the insurmountable social failures due to colonialism. After all, it is important to understand that colonialism doesn't affect those who colonize. In modern day, systemic racism of white supremacists will need to be put into question. A first step to addressing issues of inequality would be to educate what equality actually means. Having an intersectional approach when implementing rational solutions is necessary to social reform. I want to end the segment with a great metaphor from theorist Iris Young. 
she explains the importance of intersectionality through her birdcage metaphor by explaining if one thinks about racism by examining only one wire of the cage or one form of disadvantage, it is difficult to understand how and why the bird is trapped. Only a large number of wires arranged in a specific way and connected to one another serve to enclose the bird and to ensure that it cannot escape. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my segment. Thank you all so much for listening in on the Justice League speakers for today. Hopefully they presented their arguments in a clear manner, but just in case, let's recap each of their segments. Christopher spoke about the injustices surrounding immigration policies and border patrol in relation to the natural law theory. He does an excellent job in discussing the failure that the natural law creates when it comes to addressing justice in terms of unjust law enforcement towards immigrants. Valerie then expanded on this when she spoke about racialized policing in terms of the social contract theory. She comprehensively explains that a hierarchy based on the race of individuals was established through the social contract theory as it caused a divide between whites and non-whites. This divide then led to an unequal distribution of justice and equity as people of color are explicitly targeted by police. Vincent carries this conversation through the lens of intersectionality as he dives deeper into the many ways individuals are discriminated against because of intertwining personality traits. He effectively links the ways in which these intersections can prevent people from crossing the poverty line and being able to work into economic and financial stability. Pilar brilliantly concludes the group's conversation by establishing the negative consequences of colonialism and its impact on the economic instability of members of marginalized communities. The issue between unequal justice and economic stability remains as long as there is strife between the many different groups of the United States. However, let's remember that as humans, we should be celebrating what makes us different as we strive for a more unified society. This has been the Justice League's podcast, and remember, justice is best served equally.